Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. the Executive Director of Sisters in Crime, and I'm thrilled to welcome Greg Heron to the podcast today. Greg is the award-winning author of over 40 novels, editor of over 20 anthologies, and has published over 50 short stories. A sexual health counselor, he lives in New Orleans with his partner of 27 years. Greg, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Julie. I'm delighted to be here. Well, I love that you wear, you know, your short story hat, your editor hat, your writing hat, and I want to talk about all of them. But let's start at the beginning, as I do on this podcast. When did you say to yourself, I want to be a writer? Oh, as long as I can remember. I've always, that was, when I was a kid, that was all I ever wanted to do. I learned how to read when I was three years old. My sister, I have an older sister who was two years older than me, and she would come home from school every day and she would teach me everything she learned. So I learned how to read and do all of that stuff before I started school. Wow. They thought I was a prodigy. <laughs> Boy, were they wrong. <laughs> but I always loved to read and I always wanted to tell stories. Always wanted to tell stories. And I used to make up stories all the time when I was a little kid. And sometimes I. My make-believe world was more real to me than my real world, which kind of is demented when I say it. Listen to that now. It's like, oh, that sounds demented. But when I started writing, I think the earliest story I remember writing was kind of a Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew kind of thing I did when I was maybe seven, seven or eight years old. Wow. And... It wasn't very long. I mean, <laughs> it, it, it wasn't publishable by any means. But when I was a little kid, that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to grow up and write my own Hardy Boys because I thought I could do it better. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I've always had an ego, too. <laughs> <laughs> a critic at seven. Yeah. Um, was it always crime fiction that, that drew you? I mean, was that, uh, you know, always what you wanted to write? I would actually say probably I've always been more interested in it was gothic. It was gothic. Yeah. I like mystery. I like crime fiction and I like horror and I like gothic fiction that crosses between the two more. Um, I read a lot of gothics when I was growing up. I read a lot of Mary Stewart, Jillis Whitney and Dorothy Eden and Victoria Holt. I read everything I could get my hands on basically. And I always considered those to be different than Allery Queen and Agatha Christie. They weren't quite the same. They were, right. they were, they were murder mysteries in some ways, but they weren't quite the same. Yeah. They had something else. And I like to call them the books with like, I'm a sucker for a book with a woman in a nightgown running away from a scary house, the light in the window. <laughs> <laughs> I'll pick that up every time off the shelf. <laughs> but, um, so I kind of always wanted to write something like that. I got away from reading crime fiction in the late 70s because it was not... I know a lot of people think of the 1970s as a really good time for crime fiction, but I 
for me, it was not. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in oh, apologies to people who like who write this or like this, but I was really, really, really tired of the sad, drunk white man stories. Mm-hmm. What Laura Littman calls a, a beautiful woman is dead and a man is sad type books. <laughs> I didn't really, and that seemed to be the, all that there really was because Ellery Queen was done, Earl Stanley Gardner was done, Agatha Christie was dead, nobody was writing, or at least I wasn't able to find any books in the kind of crime fiction stories that I really liked. And when I was a teenager, I really didn't like the private eye fiction that much. I didn't read Hammett and Chandler and McDonald until later. And Mm -hmm. I I actually discovered Ross McDonald because of Sue Grafton. (laughs) Because I read an interview with Sue Grafton. Sue Grafton, Sarah Paresky, Marsha Muller brought me back to reading crime fiction again. And I read an interview with Sue Grafton where she talked about how Ross McDonald was such a huge influence on her. And that was how I went back and read Ross McDonald and Raymond Chandler and Dorothy Bachelor Hammond. So it was actually because of women. But I read the great men, the great male private eye crime writers of our time, of our, well, I guess of the 20th century, not our time. But the women brought me back. And I still read more women than I read men. I mean, not that there aren't great male writers right now. Sean Cosby is amazing. I love Sean Cosby and um, Ben Winters and Ace Atkins and Jeff Abbott and Harlan. And there are any number of great male writers, but I always tend to gravitate toward the women writers Mm -hmm. more. Not sure, quite sure why that is, but I think that the, the crime stories that women write are more personal Whereas male crime writers have a tendency to take a story and then all of a sudden they're saving the world. It went from like somebody was somebody was killed in this suburb and all of a sudden you're out saving the world. Because there's a big global conspiracy. It's like, where the hell did that come from? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's what's going on in Downers Grove, Illinois, or wherever, whatever suburb they choose. <laughs> so it, they always kind of lose me when it, it not that I don't enjoy reading them, but they kind of like, I'm like, I can't, that's not something I can write. That's not, yeah. I don't think in those terms. I'm always more interested in the crime and how it affects the people impacted mm-hmm. by it mm-hmm. more so than the actual, oh, there's some international, you know, I, I <laughs> if I want conspiracy theories, I'll go look at Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to have to pay to read it <laughs> I had mentioned before we started recording I'm reading Sandra Wong's new book and it's I actually was thinking this because I'm, I'm in the early chapters and it's I don't know if you know, well it's not really a spoiler it's the beginning of the book but the character it's an Asian woman who wakes up in the forest with no memory of how she got there only she knows she's been a, attacked in some way that would eventually, if a male was writing this, it would probably end up her being some kind of scientific experiment that went awry and she escaped from a lab somewhere. <laughs> 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 or she's like a super secret agent with, who has the secret to how to save the world or something and everyone's out together or something like But I think this is, this is more interesting because I think it's because it's written by a woman that's going to be more about who she is and how she wound mm-hmm. up there and the situation and 
how it impacted her and how it impacted the other people that are around her and the people in her life. And that's the kind of thing I'm really interested in. I love true crime documentaries. And the one thing that I always think about when I'm watching a true crime documentary is which one of these people would be the person I would tell the story from the perspective of as I was writing this yeah. as a novel. Yeah. Because and it because it never and it never stops when you've been involved in a crime or somebody in your family or somebody you know or your neighbor or somebody's been murdered you that you never get over it it's something right. you have to live right. with for the rest of your life and how does that change you and how does that impact you that's what I always find more interesting with one of my favorite writers is Megan Abbott and, she, and that's what mm-hmm. she does she goes into that deep personal how this crime came to be and how this person became driven to do this and how and how it impacted everybody around it. I think that's much more, for me, that's much more interesting than a standard whodunit type mystery. But you can, but you can also, but whodunit mysteries can also do that as well. Right. I love this, you know, that that Sue Grafton and Marsha Mueller and, um, and uh, Sarah Paretsky got you back in and to thinking about it. When you decided to be a writer, you know, did you, had you taken creative writing classes? Like, how did you build your craft as a writer? Uh, well, I always wrote. Um, I always wrote. I was always writing something. I was always scribbling something somewhere. And I used to always come up with, <laughs> this is, this is, this is sound so twisted and bizarre. But when I was a kid and I used to want to write my own version of the Hardy Boys, I would come up with the titles because, you know, on the back of the books, they had all the titles listed on all of those kids series books. So I would come up with the titles and then I would make up a little description of what the story would be. So I was always doing stuff like that. And so when I was in high school, I had a creative writing class in high school, a sophomore year in high school, which really was not a good class. But the teacher who was teaching it had no, looking back, I don't think she had any background in creative writing at all. So she was just basically giving us exercises and things to do that she'd read somewhere that this is what you do with creative writing classes. You know, oh, you have to keep a diary, keep a journal, write things down every day, every day, write something down. And we had to turn them in and she would grade them. So you didn't want to write anything personal. (laughs) Obviously, the teacher's going to read it and grade it. And she, she, I don't remember if she ever had us write, actually write any short stories or anything in that class. I don't really remember. I just remember we had to keep, keep the journal and I don't really remember much of anything that we did in the class. When I was in, I switched schools before my junior year and my new high school was significantly smaller. I went from a high school with about 2,000 kids to one with 180. And so obviously classrooms were very, class was very limited. There was, we didn't have a lot of offerings. My English teacher in that high school, the very first thing she had us do when we started, because the first day of class, she had us write an essay. And she basically was working, it was very weird how she did this, but everyone took the same classes pretty much until you were Mm -hmm. a junior in high school, until you got to your junior year. And then some kids did other stuff and some kids took college prep courses. And there were only like four of us in the college prep classes. And so she was working with the history teachers. We had to take U.S. history the same year that we took, we were taking English. So she was trying to have us study the periods 
of American literature that corresponded with what we were studying in U.S. history. So when we first, on the first day of class, she had us all write an essay which, so that we could, she could get a sense of how bad we were at writing and understanding gra- how bad our graphs of spelling and grammar, sentence construction and everything was. And it was basically, she wrote it, told us to write from the perspective of like, oh, like just step. You're studying in history now how Europeans first came to the United States. So write an essay about what it's like to be the first to do something. Mm-hmm. Go someplace like that. I wrote a story from the perspective of a 14-year-old Puritan kid who's going to the New World for the first time. And she really loved it. She read it aloud in class. It was the first time I'd ever gotten any praise for anything really writing-related. And from then on, whenever we had to write an essay or something for our class, she would tell me, if I want, if you want to, you can write a short story instead. And so that's, oh. so that's what I, so instead of writing essays, I would write a short story because it was much easier for me to write a short story than it was for me to write an essay because I had no idea how to write, write an essay. And all of my reading taught me sentence structure and paragraph structure and all of that stuff. You know, all the rule. I learned it from seeing it, not from actually learning it in class. Like I couldn't, somebody said something to me the other day about a gerund, and I had no idea what a gerund was. I still, to this day, I don't know what the rules of grammar are, but I can do it. And so high school was, that was the first time I ever really had any experience with it. Then when I went to college, I was going to major in, I majored in English, and I took a creative writing course, and instructor brought me into his office after we turned in our first story because we all had to meet with have a personal meeting with Dr. whatever his name was. I don't even remember his name anymore. And to go over our stories. And he basically told me that he said that he had me my story back and there was no writing on it at all. Nothing. I was like, oh, there's no markup. This is great. And he basically told me that you're an English major. I, I see that you're an English major. I don't want to mess up your grade point average and your major, but you can't write. You will never be published. Mm. You have no ability, writing, fiction writing ability whatsoever, and you will never be published. I says, I hate to tell you this, but if your dream is to be a writer, you need to find a new dream. And he said, I, I, you don't have to even turn in anything else we were required to turn in three stories that semester because you don't even have to turn in anything else in the rest of the semester there's no point just come to class come to class join in the discussions with other people's stories and i'll give you a, i'll just give you a c so as i so i won't mess up your grade point average but you really should fail and that stuck with me yeah. for a very right 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 that stuck with me for a very 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 long time and I dropped out of college. I ended up dropping out of college and then going back a few years later, we moved, I had moved from to another state and I was going to a junior college. I thought, well, what the hell? I'll take a writing class again, try it again. And that teacher was much more encouraging. And he thought that I turned in a story for his class and he said, you should send this out and get it published. Every story I turned in, he said, you, sh- you should get this published. You should send this out. You should send this out. You should send this out. And so that got me back. You know, 
I always, I still kept writing. It's like I didn't stop because of that jerk. But um, I was still writing, but I never really had. At that point, I didn't know that I would could make anything of it. But there was a part of me that was, there's always been a part of me that if you tell me I can't do something, I will do it. Just to show yeah. you that you're wrong. And that was kind of how I felt about him. It was like, oh, he's just wrong. That was a horrible thing to say to any student. No teacher should ever say that to a student. No. And the older I get, the more wrong. And I mean, I, I just don't understand that mentality. But this is also back in the days of the typewriters and multiple submissions and having to mail things and paper clips and not using staples yeah. and stuff like that. And before I came back to crime fiction, I was primarily reading horror and science fiction and fantasy. Because I'd always liked horror. And Stephen King came around mm -hmm. when I was a teenager. And then I became a huge Stephen King fan. And that led me to read other horror writers as well. And that was what I was primarily reading in the 80s. So I was trying to get published by writing horror stories. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I laugh about it now because it's so, it so stupid. But I used to send my, I would write a story and I would, I would mail it to a couple of places. And there was one major market in the horror industry. And I don't remember, there were two actually. And I can't remember what the name of the other one was, but I used to always get rejected by them, but I would get notes and they would encourage me to keep trying both editors and these were major horror publications which to me i didn't know what i didn't know what anything was and i i would see it i i picked them out of the writer's market yeah. <laughs> yeah. that's where i found them was in the writer's market and i was just you know sending them stuff and finally after like seven or eight rejections i just thought yeah i'm gonna give this up for a while and try something else for a while because i'm not selling anything they don't they're just being nice. They're just being nice. This is probably just what they, they, they say this to everyone that they turned down. And it wasn't until years later when I became an editor that I realized that no editor ever says things just to be nice. <laughs> <laughs> no editor will ever, no one, no editor will ever reject you and tell you to keep submitting if they think your work is awful. Yes, <laughs> no, no, for sure they won't. So I was really, really amused by that when I realized that I was like, oh wow just think how different your career would have been if you'd been smarter and you knew more about the business when you were in your 20s I could be yeah. a, I could have been on the being a horror and never written crime fiction at all which is weird <laughs> which <laughs> really, is weird right really it weird. would be a loss to crime fiction <laughs> um and you said you kept writing I mean that teacher you know uh, experience is just horrifying and heartbreaking and I can only imagine how many people he affected that didn't keep going you know I kind of there were some people in the class whose work he thought was amazing I thought it was terrible yeah <laughs> yeah it's so subjective and, and he so there were people he encouraged and then finally on the the best part, though, is on the very last day of class, he treated us and read one of his stories to us. 
<laughs> it was the most derivative piece of shit I've ever heard in my entire <laughs> life. I was sitting there listening to it. It's like, I've heard this story before. I know this story before. And I, and I eventually did find a similar type story. The name of the story, this should tell you how pompous and pretentious the story was. The title of the story was Apollo and Gray, Daphne and Red. <laughs> yeah and all this symbolism and it was set during the depression and it was about this family who the mom wanted her kids to have christmas so they were stealing electricity from their neighbor next door so that they could have a christmas tree lights for their christmas tree and they got caught and she had to go meet with the with the executive of the local power company and he was in gray and she kind of used her feminine wiles on him. And he even gave her some care. He decided not to prosecute and let them keep their Christmas lights and even gave her, gave her some money that she blew on strawberries in the middle of December in Kansas. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that was a wise choice and you're just where you can't afford electricity and you don't know how you're going to feed your kid. But by all means, let's take this found money and buy strawberries. <laughs> okay. I mean, it was, so you, you get the point. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And so, and that kind of helped me a little bit too with that processing his douchery by thinking, oh, I'm kind of glad he doesn't like what I write. I don't respect his work. I'm glad he doesn't respect mine. That's actually a point in my favor. So yeah, I always kept writing. I wrote, I was writing a book at that time that just had, I had no idea how to write a book. I never learned how, I never read a book about anything about writing a book. I thought, I was so naive. I, I laugh at how naive I was, but I didn't even know about drafts. It's like, I always thought Mm -hmm. you, you just wrote it and it was done. And, mm-hmm. if it, and if it was good, it was good. And if it wasn't, you just didn't do anything with it. And so all the stories I wrote in high school were tied together. They were about the same group of kids. I wrote about a group of kids at a high school. And that just kind of was going to be my book. And I just kept writing about them. And I just kept writing about them and writing about them. And, oh, they went, they went through all kinds of stuff. And it really, literally, it was just a soap opera. I was writing a soap opera mm-hmm. about these kids. I was writing Gossip Girl 40 years before Gossip Girl. <laughs> and I did eventually finish it. It was like 1,500 handwritten pages. But, wow. but I never really learned how to type properly. So turning that into typing that was a massive undertaking that I just couldn't face doing. <laughs> so yeah. I, never, so yeah. I still have it. I still have it in, in in its mind in the binders, and I've stolen stuff from it over the years, like characters, plot lines, stories. Yeah, the, yeah. The, my most my most recent book, she deserved it, is basically those kids that I wrote about when I was in high school. The same characters, the same town, the same everything. Only yeah, I put, I put that new story, got them involved in that new story. Which was was an interesting experience, um, learning how to build character and yeah. archetypes. And I was very into soaps. I want to make that very clear. Yeah. I think I need to make that very clear. I was very into soaps. I watched 
Dark Shadows, All My Children, General Hospital, One Life to Live, The Young and the Restless for years. (laughs) Years and years and years and years and years. And you start to realize that what the actors and the writers bring to the characters makes them um, unique. But there's always the certain characters that every show has. You have your your lovely young heroine who just cries a lot when bad things happen. Mm-hmm. It's very, very passive. Then you have the bitch who just likes to cause trouble. <laughs> yep. And you have the, the main hero who's so basically a good person, but not very bright and makes mistakes because <clears throat> he allows his hormones to make mis- lead him into, down a dark path and make mistakes yeah. and cause yeah. lots and lots of heartache and so on and so on. And they recycle the plots over and over and over again as well. I used to want to be a soap writer, actually. <laughs> I thought, that's yeah. something I could do. I'd love to create my own show or work for one of these shows. But I don't think I, I ever could manage to do that. I've looked into it and have read like Agnes Nixon's bio and all the work that they do. And like, oh my God, that's way too much work. Way too much work. Oh my God. Way too much work. And then never knowing when never know never knowing when somebody's gonna decide, eh, I'm out of here. Now I've got to redo the entire next three years yeah. of the story. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, how awful. Well, those golden age of 70s and early 80s soaps too, because I, I don't, you know, when there were four channels and everybody watched General Hospital oh. or Guiding Light, you know, one or the other. And, you yep, know, yep, yep, talked yep. about people like they were people. I mean, it, it's, it was part of the culture. I mean, it, it, you know. it, abs- it absolutely was. The college on the college campuses, you know, the cafeterias, everybody was ate lunch around the TVs yep. watching all my children. Yep. Yeah. And Luke and Laura and yep. general, general hospitals. Luke and Laura was like insanely popular. Yeah. No, and, it's and now they're almost all gone. There's only a few left. I know. They I were know. like a big business for a very, very, very long time. Guaranteed very money. Very long time. Guaranteed yeah. money for the networks. And now they're just And gone. for the actors, you know? I mean, it was a good gig for actors. Oh. Um, but no, it was um, a, it was part, part of a culture and a way of thinking. And, and it's that narrative storytelling. So it sounds like that was something you enjoyed and you still enjoy. It's like really spinning a yarn and developing those characters and how the world is impacting them and how they're impacting the world rather than a you know, cataclysmic event that drives it. You're, you're, you're character driven. Yeah. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah. I, I, I I think that all story and all plot has to come from the characters. And if it doesn't, it doesn't work in my Mm -hmm. mind. I, I probably, I would say this is, I'm so bad at this. This is, (laughs) this is why I have the career I have. Probably my biggest weakness in, in writing is plot. <laughs> that is my weakest. I'm really good at setting. I'm really good at scene. I'm really good at dialogue. I'm really good at characters. But oh, making that plot work. <laughs> <laughs> making that plot work is always really, really hard for me. And a lot of times I'm always curious. I'm always curious if people come up with because I always come up with the, the story first and then become the 
I come up with the title first, then I come up with the story that goes with the title, and then I come up with the characters, and then the characters always end up changing my original idea dramatically. Right. Who they are and what, because, oh, well, she would never do this, or he would never, this wouldn't happen because he wouldn't do this, or he's not that kind of a person, or this sort of thing. So I end up, so that, I guess that's why I always feel like my plots, why I'm so weak at plotting is because I always start out with an idea of what my plot is going to be and it never ends up being what it is. And I think because it's, because I, I developed the characters, I should probably look at my plot the same way that I look at how I built my characters and that how the characters are growing and building and developing. That's changing the story but the characters are changing from who you originally envisioned them as, as you get to know them better. So I probably should not be so hard on myself because the same, I do the same thing with the plot that I do with the characters. Yeah. The plot changes as I get to know the characters better. Does the title change too? Very rarely. <laughs> I love that. Now I, I haven't heard anyone tell me that before. So you come up with the title first. I can't write anything if it doesn't have a title. Like it's insane. Wow. It's completely insane. I know, but I'll always hear, but I will always hear something. And this, this is literally how it works for me is I'll hear something or I'll read a phrase or something I'm reading or in the newspaper or in a song or on television or something. I think that's a great title. And then I think, well, what's, what would the story be that goes with that title? And then I come up with it from there Bury Me in Shadows was not the original title. The original title was Bury Me in Satin. And that's a song lyric from a song by the band Perry. It's a song called If I Die Young that, mm -hmm. I, heard, that I heard them perform. I had, never, I had no idea who they were, but I loved to watch award shows. <laughs> I was watching a country music awards show and they performed it live. It's like, this song is absolutely beautiful. And so I looked up the... I looked at the video and the whole thing is um, the whole video, the whole song is a play on Ophelia and the okay. lady, as well as the lady of Shalott. Mm -hmm. And I just thought bury me in satin is such a, if I die young, bury me in satin, lay me down in a bed of roses. I just thought bury me in satin is such a great title. And I started, I had always had this idea for right. I wanted to write this ghost story, family ghost story. And I was told, my grandmother told me when I was a kid, and I thought, Bury Me in Satin is a great title for the ghost story. Now you can write the yeah. ghost story. And then I started writing it, and I was like, mm, Bury Me in Satin doesn't really fit <laughs> quite the way I want it to. And then I <laughs> literally looked at my book, was looking at my bookcase one day, and I had Barbara Michaels and Elizabeth Peters books were all lined up together and the walker in shadows was right next to be buried in the rain. It's like <laughs> bury me in shadows. That's, that's the title. That's the perfect title. So I stole the title from <laughs> Elizabeth Peters. May she forgive me. If she's looking down from heaven at me now, please forgive me. I was a huge fan. I loved your work. <laughs> both both names, Barbara Michaels and Elizabeth yeah. Peters, loved them all. Loved them all. So what is your process like? You're finding that title and you're sort of coming up with a what's the story that goes with that title. And then you're 
you sort of come up with a story, but your characters drive it. Do you, so do you pants? Do you plot at all? Like what's your process like? Well, it's a kind of, it's kind of a combination of both. I try to, I try not to be too rigid a plotter because I know it's going to change as I start writing it. It's always going to change. I'm not, I'm not going to have my characters when I start writing the story characters are not going to be as fully developed as I want them to be no matter Mm -hmm. how hard I want them to be because as I start getting into who they are when I'm writing about them I'll start learning other things about them that I didn't think about before and that'll and that'll change the story I had a mentor and she was very specific about how you do this about how you write a mystery series and she was a very successful she was a successful mystery writer in her own and I was very, very lucky to have her support to encourage me and push me and teach me things. And so basically, I came up with this very detailed outline where like every chapter was at least was a minimum of 500 words description of what was going to happen in that chapter. And then I did then I did incredibly detailed bios of all of the characters, every character, even somebody who was just going to be in like one scene and never be seen again. I wanted to know exactly who that person was. Then I started writing the book. And when I was writing the book, my main character started changing as I started hearing his voice inside of my head. This was also a first person narrative. And that started changing the story. And then when I had gotten the entire first draft done, I realized that everything from because of the change I had stuck to the outline, but because of the changes in the characters that had developed as it, it went, it didn't work anymore. The story didn't work. Yeah. So yeah. everything after I believe from chapter 10 on, I had to throw out and start over, start that all over again, because like, I don't know. And so I kind of made that up as I was going Like how, you know, well, that didn't work how do I make this work? And then I had to refigure out who the killer was and how, what the, what the motive of why it happened and everything else. And I was like, wow, I put a lot of work into that for nothing. That was a lot of wasted time and a lot of wasted energy. And I don't ever want to do that again, because I'm very prolific, but I also have very limited time that I can write mm-hmm. in. And so mm-hmm. I can't, I can't finish a draft of a book and realize the entire second half has, of the book has to be completely redone. Right. Because I can't do that anymore, not when you have a deadline. Right. <laughs> That's just impossible. Right. So then you have to make it work. And so I don't, that's why I kind of pants it. I have a vague idea of what's going to, of what the story is. And then I just won't let it develop as I write it so that I don't have to. <laughs> waste any of my energy or time creative energy and time doing stuff that i can't use i don't ever throw anything away because stuff that i'm a firm believer in never throwing anything away because you never know when you're going to need it and and that has happened to me several times where something that didn't work in a particular a couple of chapters or something that didn't work somewhere in in a book or a story or something oh that would sit here perfectly and I can just plug it in so I try not to I, I try to be as careful as I possibly can so that I don't waste time I have so much 
I have so much to do between between writing and my day job and my partner, just my everyday life and all of my yeah. volunteer activities and everything that I have to get done every week. I just can't really waste that time. And so anymore. And so I try to be very economical and very careful and try to get as much like right now I'm writing. <laughs> oh, I don't even want to say, but I have four books in progress right now. I'm in the middle of four books, which is insane, which is absolutely insane. And I can't believe that I have four in progress at the same time. And there might even be a fifth. I don't know. Depends on what happens. But I'm trying to write something that I don't have. I'm trying to write two things that I don't have on contract. These are two projects that book projects that I really want to develop and not be crunched with for time to get them down. I wanted to take the time to do them right. She Deserved It, which is my most recent book. I wrote the first draft in 2015, and I let it sit and worked on it here and there for years because it was something I didn't want to rush. And then, mm-hmm. finally, and then finally I realized, okay, it's at the point where one more draft, it will be done. And I need another set of eyes to look at this. So let me go ahead and see if my publisher wants it and they did and done it's done but i'm trying to get these two and i have another book due my next book is due in that i have on contract is due in december and somebody else another editor is interested in a was interested <sighs> my life is so insane so I've had this idea for a long time. I talk about it on my blog periodically and I've been playing with it off and on. It's very fun. It's a 1950s Hollywood gay noir in the gay underworld of 1950s Hollywood when the studio system mm-hmm. was starting to go away and television was coming in and there was all that red scare and all of that. It's a really, really, really good period to write a uh, gay noir about closeted movie stars. And I talk about it on my blog every once in a while. People are really get excited about it. I read from it at Sleuthfest. And so I've just been playing with that around for a little while. And then an editor friend of mine was interested in it and got in touch with me and was interested in it. But I wasn't really ready to, like, well, I don't know if I want to sign yeah. anything or commit to anything with it yet because... I know where I want, how I want it to go and where I want it to go, but I'm not, but I want to get to, I'm not really willing to commit to anything with it until I have a completed first draft. However, mm-hmm. however, I had this other idea. For, <laughs> for, <laughs> so what do you think of this idea? And he really, really liked that idea as well. And so I just, so one day I was home. And I don't remember what was going on, but I was just, Oh, I know what it was. I, w- I had just finished the edits on a short story that I was getting published that I'd sold. And I wasn't, I can't remember what it was, but why I decided, it's like, well, let me see if I, let me write a chapter to see if he likes it. So I wrote the first chapter, which I had already had the idea for in my head. And so I wrote the first chapter and I emailed it to him. He loved it. So then the next week I wrote another chapter and sent it to him. So I've been writing him a chapter every week. We're up to <laughs> chapter. <laughs> so we're up to chapter four, but I'm also working on the other stuff at the same time. So, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to figure out 
the Scotty series it happens a little bit more is a little bit more different when I write the Scotty books. Um, Scotty is very is a free spirit, as he, mm-hmm. so life just happens to him. He doesn't actually go out looking for trouble or anything. It just stuff always just finds him. And so I write the books that way. All right, well, what's going to happen now? Uh, have a body drop out of the sky. Why not? And, and that's how I write those. And so that's, so those books always start with the weird, with the title. And I come up with like three or four things that I want to write about that I want to put into the book. And then I have to figure out how to make those four things all fit into the book. And so the one I'm doing now is like, I wanted to do, there was a, there was a scandal recent, and no, not recently. I'm terrible with the passing of time anymore. It's probably years ago now. There was a scandal in Louisiana where a parish president, where Louisiana has parishes, we don't have counties. And so like the county commissioner, I guess, was what you do. Mm-hmm. The equivalent of that in Louisiana is the parish president. So the parish president, who was very, very white ring, very, very homophobic, very, very, you know, evangelical, all of the, all the good stuff. And he um, was grooming this teenager who worked at the mall, was like buying him gifts and sending him sex, sexting him and buying him underwear and coming to the mall to see him at the food court where he worked. And the kid didn't think anything of it. He just thought, oh, this is that creepy old guy. He didn't even know who he was. <laughs> One of his coworkers recognized him and called the paper. <laughs> so there, there was a bit of a scandal there. And I think he is actually still parish president. I don't think it, and he was from a political family too. Like his grandfather had been parish president and his grand, great grandfather. Yeah. And now going back many, many generations, that was basic politics of the family business. And so I wanted to write something about that. I want to include, yeah. do that. And then I wanted to do, <laughs> I've always I always wanted to do an homage to, um, there are a lot of, I guess they're called Easter eggs mm-hmm. in, in my books that I'll always throw it like, in Bury Me in Shadows, the family plantation that is burned to the ground during the Civil War and is the basis for all of everything that's going on is Blackwood Hall. And they were the Blackwood family, which is from Nancy Drew, the ghost of Blackwood Hall. <laughs> so I wrote a ghost story about Blackwood Hall. So I, I one of the ones I, I, I kind of want to do an homage to Nancy Drew's The Haunted Showboat, which was in Louisiana. Oh, yeah. It was in New Orleans and in Louisiana. So I was like, okay, well, I started doing all this research and riverboats and gambling boats and showboats. And it's like, I can kind of structure, I can kind of, I wonder if anybody will catch this. If I do this, that I borrow these elements from an Nancy Drew book, which would be in which, you know, I don't know. I was, I, I really thought a lot of people would catch on to Blackwood Hall, but no one seems yeah. to have, <laughs> nobody <laughs> seems to have. But so I wanted to do that. I wanted to include that and I wanted to include um, the showboat story. And I mm-hmm. figured out how to make that work. The showboat story work with uh, the political story. And I wanted to figure out a way how I could include a showboat, political scandal and a ballerina all with the same story. And now I've got it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's going to be the book. <laughs> well, 
but you have this is one of about four other projects that you're working on. Do you do you, you have them all all those plates spinning at the same time? I mean, how do you how do you keep that straight in your mind? You know, I wish I had an explanation that would make sense for people, but it just does. It, I can just, I can just delineate. I, I've always been able to work on multiple things at the same time. I've always, wow. I've always been able to do that. I call it creative ADHD because I always have, I always carry blank journals with me, and they're, and I've always, they're full of titles, characters, scenes, ideas. I'm constantly, I will never write all the stories and books that I want to write, that I have the ideas for. I have file cabinets full of them, scenes and character descriptions and titles and series oh. ideas. And, oh, well, this would, wouldn't this be, a, somebody really should do this. Oh, it would be really interesting to write. Somebody should really write this story. I had never wanted, when I finished, I had always planned my Chance McLeod series to last for seven books. And so when I got to book seven, that was another another thing. I had planned the whole seven book series out and then Hurricane Katrina happened. <laughs> so yeah. that, that my plans all went awry. So all of that work was for nothing because Hurricane Katrina changed everything. And so yeah. that's kind of why I yeah. try not to get to deep into the weeds planning stuff because mm -hmm. I've had, I've been, I've been, it's blown up in my face too many times. Yeah. And so I, I try not to do that. I've always, I've got 80 short stories in progress in some wow. form or another right now. And it really, I just, I mean, it's just, I'll get an idea for a short story. I'll have the title. <coughs> I'll start writing the story. And then when I get stuck, I stop. So I have all of these fragments. I just write until I can't write yeah. any, until I don't write anymore. Until I run out of what I want to say or what I'm going to do next. And then I just put it aside. And if I get a, if I get a, if I see a call, like for a short story, if I see a call for submissions for a short story, oh, I've got that fragment. I can, that'll work. I can finish that, that particular story and then I dig it out and try to get it finished. I try not to, I love writing short stories, ironically, despite the fact that I don't think I'm particularly good at it. And, um, but there are so few places to publish them anymore that I just write them for the joy of writing the story now. And if I happen to find a place where it might fit, it might, I'll send it to them. And I've been very lucky. I've also had to, I also get asked periodically and that kind of throws things off too, because, but again, here's a case in point where the title will come in handy. So I've always thought, when I first started writing my Chance series, I was originally going to do all of the titles in a certain way. They were all going to be um, plays on famous crime novels of the past. And so I, one was going to, the first one was Murder in the Rue Dauphine. So that was Murders in the Rue Morgue, obviously. <laughs> but what the publisher ended up wanting was that they wanted, they liked the murder in the structure. Yeah. So all of those became Murder in the something. But the next, but one of the ones further along was I was going to do a 
I was going to do a Sherlock Holmes kind of title for it and kind of do it. I wanted to kind of do a Holmesy type novel set in the modern day with a gay male private eye who called it The Affair of the Purloined Rent Boy, which I thought was a great title. (laughs) (laughs) It is a great title. And then two years ago, but then I wasn't able to use it. And then two years ago, I was asked to write a Sherlock Holmes story (laughs) for an anthology out of Australia, of all places, where the rule was it had to be Holmes and Watson. It could be any time period. It could be anywhere in the world. It just could not be canon London. You couldn't use Doyle's period of London. And so I said it in New Orleans in 1916, and I already had the title, The Affair of the Purling yeah. Rent Boy. <laughs> and I went with it from there. <laughs> and I'm so glad that I finally got that to use that title, then that it's out yeah. there in the world in print, because it's such a great title. <laughs> I, now I have to do a collection of my own short stories just so that it's available in America. <laughs> yes, yes, you do, Craig. <laughs> and you've also written um, for young audiences. Is this yes? Yeah, um, it's well. I always wrote about teenagers. When I was in high school, I wrote about teenagers. So I've always written. I've always ended up going back to writing about teenagers, and <clears throat> I had written. In the early 1990s, I can't remember why I did this, but I decided to go into Walden Books and More. And I went in and there was this massive display of books. And I had never, I had not been familiar with young adult fiction because I'd never read it. I read kids' books mm-hmm. and graduated from I went from Nancy Drew and Trixie Belden and the Hardy Boys and the Three Investigators to Agatha Christie and Ellery Queen. I skipped. I went from kids' books to adult books because it was all really juvenile back then. They all called it, it was all lumped under juvenile. Mm-hmm. And, I didn't, and I didn't want to read kids' books anymore, so I stopped reading kids' books and started reading adult books. But there was all this YA that I'd never read that I never knew about, which I never wanted to read because I felt I had outgrown it. Because there was something ABC after school special about them, the ones that I had read. And so I kind of didn't really want to read that stuff anymore. And there was this massive display of books. And I said to the clerk, I said, wow, I've never heard of this writer before. Are these books for these for kids? And she said, oh, yeah, they're all the rage now. All the teenagers are reading them. It's young adult. And so she showed me this whole section of the store that was just dedicated to young adult stuff. And it was the display was Christopher Pike, which is crime and also some horror mixed in as well. Yeah. So it was right in my right in my sweet spot. And so I bought a couple of them, enjoyed them, and I thought, I maybe, maybe some of these ideas that I've been this book that you've been working on, that I was working on something, and it was about teenagers. So well, maybe you should make this. Instead of trying to make it a book for adults, you should try to just make it for teenagers because you're writing about teenagers. And there is a difference. And Mm -hmm. so the book I was working on was called Sarah. And so I 
finished the first draft of it. I was like, oh, it's not very, very, very good. And then I wrote another one called Sorceress, which also was not very, very good. And then I started writing a third one and it was called Sleeping Angel. I got about halfway through that. And that was when I discovered gay mysteries, that there was such a thing as gay mysteries. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right around the time, I said, oh, well, I don't want to write this stuff anymore. I want to write gay mysteries. I didn't even know this was a thing. And so those all went into a drawer. And I had told a friend of mine sometime around Hurricane Katrina, before or after, I met an editor from Simon & Schuster for Teen, Simon Teen, I think it was. And he was familiar with my work already at the time. And he said, have you ever considered writing stuff for young adults? I said, actually, I have written stuff for young adults. It's sitting in a drawer. He said, well, why don't you send me something? I said, well, give me your business card. Well, so he did. And I started rewriting um, Sarah, the first one. Started rewriting it to submit to Simon Teen. And then Hurricane Katrina happened and everything changed and I forgot all about it. And it was one of those things I was talking to a friend a year or so later. I was like, oh, there's one of those missed opportunity stories. Katrina screwed this up for me. I could be publishing YA with Simon and Schuster now. And she's like, well, I'm acquiring, I'm acquiring YA for this other publisher now. Why don't you send it to me? And I said, well, it's not done. I didn't finish revising. I said, oh, just finish revising it and sending it to send it to me. And so I did. And I sent it to her. She really liked it. And we got into discussions with the publisher. And then the publisher shut the line down. Nothing ever happened with it. And then she eventually decided to start her own small press for YA books. She wanted my book. And the one I had rewritten for her was Sorceress. She wanted to publish it. And I said, yeah, you can publish it. I'm not going to do anything else with it. And mm-hmm. so I just let her have it, send it to sign the contract. And my, I had just started publishing with Bold Strokes at that time. And I, oh, I should let them know I'm doing this. <laughs> and so I emailed them and said, Bold Strokes, and said, well, I just want to let you know my friend Victoria is starting a small press for, y, for young adults books she asked me if she could have one that i had on hand that we had talked about before i sent it to her she's going to publish it i just wanted to let you know and then they replied well you know we do why i said no i didn't know that <laughs> no was not aware and i said well i have two others and so that's how i became a YA author i always back into these things it never is weird my career always seems to come looking for me instead of me going looking for it but that's probably why my career is what it is and not much bigger than it actually is i just kind of fumble into things and so they published sleeping angel and then they they published sarah and then i wrote another a couple of other ones the 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 young adult stuff I do is more paranormal. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to say it's horror because I don't, my stuff's not scary. It's creepy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so I've gotten, I won a couple of independent, some kind of independent press awards for them. I don't really know much about their, I have them somewhere, their medals. I have a gold medal and a bronze medal. So they did really well. My publisher was very pleased with them. And so, well, you know, I write about teenagers. I have all this material, all these years I've written about teenagers and all these ideas for books about teenagers. I should go ahead and 
So that's kind of how I became a YA writer. But Bury Me in Shadows and She Deserved It are marketed as YA because the main characters are teenagers. Bury Me in Shadows, he's, a, he's in college, but he's still mm-hmm. technically a teenager. And so they market them as YA, but I don't, I personally don't think of them as YA. I just think of them as paranormal novels with teenagers, or crime novels mm-hmm. with teenagers about teenagers. I mean, is Megan Abbott's Dare Me a YA? Mm-hmm. It's about teenagers, but it's not a YA. And right. it was not marketed as a YA. And there are any number of, it really just depends on how they want to market it. Um, I don't know that my books are necessarily YA or YA appropriate. I don't know. I don't read enough in that genre to actually say for certain or not, but I don't, but then I, then I watch things like Gossip Girl and I, oh, well, <laughs> my stuff's not this raunchy. So <laughs> maybe I am writing YA, yeah, I'm not this, I'm not doing this and it, 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 it's really interesting. I was, um, I like writing about teenagers. I do because there's that, I love that whole sense of everything is the end of the world mentality yeah. that they have. Like this is <laughs> the, the most horrible thing that's ever happened to anybody of ever, 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 ever of all time. I will never recover. I love that. I love, I, I, I love their self-absorption. Yeah. <laughs> and it's fun to write about and it's fun to write about them learning that it's not all about them. Yeah. Which is the hard lesson that we all have to learn at some point. Yeah. Some of us never do. And, and, and that's... I, I, she deserved it is probably the last two books of mine, Bury Me in Shadows and She Deserved It, are probably two of my favorite books of my own that I've written. There are others that I really, 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 really am fond of, but I'm really, really close to these two. I really like these two a lot. I've, I'm very proud of these. And She Deserved It is not for everybody. Um, I didn't think about it when I was writing it. I just wanted to tell that story so badly and it didn't occur to me that it could be upsetting, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. fortunately my publisher caught on to. And I was like, oh my God, I never, that never even crossed my mind because I wanted to tell the story so bad. I just, it never crossed my mind that this could be a hurtful, that it could trigger mm-hmm. somebody in that way because you start remembering she deserved his, um, was inspired by the Steubenville and Marysville rape cases with the high school football team targeting the girls. And that outraged me so much. I always wanted to write about it. And I actually wrote the first draft of this book in 30 days that summer of Stu- the summer of Steubenville, the Steubenville trial. I wrote the book in 30 mm-hmm. days. But it was, that sounds a, a lot more amazing than it actually is because I already had the characters. Mm-hmm. I created the characters 40 years ago. I knew exactly who they were. I knew exactly mm-hmm. who these kids were. And I knew exactly how I could tell the story using those kids. And I'm glad that who knew that when I was writing about created these characters in high school, that 40 years later, almost over 40 years later, they would achieve their full potential as characters and finally make it into print in a what I hope is a really good story that. Everybody who reads the book should be outraged. 
(laughs) As outraged as I was, I wrote that book in a righteous fury. (laughs) I'm just so tired of women Mm -hmm. and girls being treated like something that can be thrown away and discarded. It just makes me angry and it's infuriating. And I've witnessed it and I've seen it my entire life. Mm-hmm. And it's so prevalent. I knew it was. I knew it was extremely prevalent. I didn't know how prevalent it was. I think that was where the outrage came from. And looking back, looking back at college and high school, my own experiences and what I witnessed, because I was not one of the boys, so I had an outside perspective. I don't know if I'll ever write about that again, but it's something I feel very passionately about. And mm-hmm. I dedicated the book to all the girls who were never believed. And mm-hmm. after the Steubenville and Marysville case, when I, w- I would talk to, I'd talk to a lot of my women friends about it. And I started, they started telling me stuff. Yeah. And that was when I began to realize it's like, oh my God. You thought you thought it was you thought there was a lot of it. You did not realize the extent of how much of it there is. And I'm glad to see that you know, like conferences aren't putting up with that stuff anymore. I love what you're saying because it's you know you're talking about the empathy that you've built up as a human being and as a writer, and using your own life experience, but also listening being open to listening and learning about other experiences and not making it about you, but sort of saying, okay, so we're in this together. I, you know, I think that that's sort of what we're all trying to work on now. We need to work on, but that is more recent, right? The room for all of these stories and the room for, you know, gay fifties, um, noir and for women's stories and all this, I, you know, now feels like a time when we were more open to those stories where even 20, 30 years ago, there wasn't opportunities to, to write those books or, or have these oh. characters. Oh, not at all. Yeah, exactly. I couldn't, I don't think that, I don't think that she deserved it would have been published 20 years ago. I don't think that anyone would have taken a chance on it. 20 years ago, I don't think anyone would have wanted it 30 years ago. I actually, it's, (laughs) it's actually kind of funny because I recently was reminded of something because I found something, one of my titles, I found one of my titles. It's like, oh, I remember this. I remember where I came up with this title and I remember the story and what it was. And I started looking into it some more and it was, um, do you remember the Spur Posse in the 90s? Yeah. I, yeah. I, want, I was going to write about them in the 90s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I had the whole thing worked out. The, the title, yeah. what the story was going to be, how, how it was going to all come down. And that was in 1993 or 1994. Mm-hmm. And, then, something, yeah. and Steubenville and Maryville were 20 years later. Mm-hmm. But there was this, but you all, and what was also kind of interesting to me is that all those boys who are in that spur posse have all come to a bad end. Every last one of them came to a bad end. And I'm very, that's the true crime story. I would love Sarah Weinman to write. (laughs) I would love her to cover the spur posse and what happened to the boys and what that says about upper middle-class suburbs, so on and so forth. Or Megan Abbott could do a great fictional version of it. 
you know, what I'm hearing you say too, is that it's those stories told through a lens of, of the damage that are done to everybody and that we need to break this fever of the patriarchy and white supremacy and Tosk, you know, it's all not, it's not good for any of us. It's not. Um, as part of our conversation about your writing journey, you talk about, you know, reaching out to publishers or them reaching out to you and editing anthologies and different genres because you're really part of the community and you you know people by having been in the community for this long. And and you're on the board of um of Mystery Writers of America. I mean, you're you're doing a lot of very public facing uh stuff. What what does a writing community mean to you and how what has it meant to your writing career? Well, when I first started publishing, really the world was a different place. There used to be an opportunity, there used to be opportunities for queer writers like myself to develop, a, to build a career completely outside of the mainstream world. We had queer bookstores, we had queer newspapers, and every, every major city had at least one queer newspaper. New Orleans had two. There was national queer glossy magazines, there were national gay queer publications. There were organizations for queer writers. There was events for queer writers. There was all these things that you could do to have a career and never go to a Bashakan or never belong to Sisters in Crime, never belong to Mystery Writers of America. And you could build a career that way. And that is literally what I did. And I always was doing, um, I, I got reviewed in the queer papers. I got reviewed in the queer magazines. I went to the queer bookstores to I went to the queer conferences and those things aren't there anymore. But at the same time, we've also kind of over the last, as you noted earlier, it's changed the last years, last years or so that the communities become more, the mainstream mystery communities become more integrated. There are more mm-hmm. people, there are more writers of color and there are more queer writers and we're getting published by publishers who never would touch us before and or wouldn't go anywhere near us before. And it's it's really lovely to see. And I hope this is something that's going to be maintained. I joined the Board of Mystery Writers of America in 2011. And at that point, that was shortly after one of the last major queer bookstores in the country closed. Because I realized at that time that I was no longer going to, I no longer had the queer publishing community there. And it wasn't there anymore. It just wasn't there anymore. And so I joined the Board of Mystery Writers of America just to see what it was like and how welcoming it would be. And I had some experience, I had some bad experiences. I had some very bad experiences. Um, I was told by a major mystery conference that um, I'd gone I'd gone to a conference one year and had been on a panel. And I had been told what to do to get on a panel, and I did that, and it worked one year, and it worked the next year, and then the next year it didn't work, and I was like, okay, well, let me write to them. You know, I gave them a few days after the program came out and everything, and I wrote to them, and I just said... I just want to know, 
you know, I, I don't have a problem. I know how hard it is what you do. Programming is very, very difficult. I've done it. I know how hard it is. And I'm, this is not to be seen as a criticism, but I had always been told that getting a panel at your event was predicated on how early you registered because that was what I had been told that the earlier you register, the more, the better your chances of getting on something were. I said, well, I registered a year early and I didn't get on anything this year. Did did I do something wrong? Is there anything that I could have done that would have given me a different outcome? And the email I got back was, well, you know, everybody wants to get on a panel and you just have to realize you're nobody. And any panel you've gotten in the past was basically a gift. I was like, wow. (laughs) Wow. And being me, I wrote back and I said, well, that was probably the nastiest, most unprofessional communication I've ever received from any kind of writing conference in my career. I may be a nobody to you, but I just published my eighth book. I've won numerous awards. I've been reviewed in numerous major publications. And my partner runs happens to run a literary event much bigger than yours here in New Orleans. And I showed him your email and he told me that if one of his staff spoke to an author like that, he'd fire them on the spot. You can keep my registration as a donation. I will never attend your conference again. Go fuck yourself. And clearly, 12 years later, I'm still mad about that. Yeah. And how many people have they said things like that to? How many queer people, how many people of color have they said Mm -hmm. that to? You're nobody. You don't count. We're important. You're not. It's a gift. Oh, is it now? (laughs) Guess what? I could do your job better. And guess what? I did do their job and better (laughs) since then. And I, I, like I said, don't tell me I'm nobody. Don't tell me I'm, I can't do something because I will do it just to show Mm -hmm. you that you're wrong. And I've never, I've never forgotten that, obviously. And I've never forgiven it either. It's unforgivable. And I made it my goal when I was on, because I was on the board at MWA at the time, that I wanted to make sure that nobody is ever made to feel like that or is spoken to like that by anyone in this community ever again. And I don't know that. If I've been successful, I, I can't take credit. I'm not going to, and I, I can't take credit for that. I certainly can't take credit for that work, but it's very, it makes me very happy now to see that we have panels at major conferences in our small and large conferences in our, in our community, where all the people who are not cisgender white people are on one panel and it's the diversity panel and that's all they get to do. Or you're just, or the, the indigenous writer is on a four o'clock panel on Friday afternoon when everyone's in the bar or at eight o'clock on Sunday morning when no one's going to be there it's nice to see that's not the case anymore and that people of color and people who are queer are getting included as guests of honor, Toastmasters, getting nominated for the awards. I was very happy to see there were 
at the lefties at Left Coast Prime. It was lovely to see that PJ Vernon was nominated for, and John Copenhaver yes. and um, Marco Caracari were all nominated yep. for lefties. That that was amazing. It it was amazing to see how many of the Anthony, how diverse the Anthony list was this year and last year and the year before. It, it's it's happening. The community is changing and works and people are being welcomed in and it's just going to make the community better. I, the community is very important to me. It really, really is. I've had gotten so much support and love from people in this community. Everybody from, you know, librarians to just fans to the biggest names in, in our genre are all have all been so lovely and gracious and welcoming and kind to me. And I see that with other writers now too. And it's lovely. It's lovely to see. And it gives me hope. And it's going to make the community and our books and our genre better. Mm-hmm. I, I always say that, you know, Sarah and Marsha and Sue reinvented the private eye genre in the 1980s when it had gotten incredibly stale mm-hmm. well now the queer writers and the people of color are reinventing the entire genre and i have noticed that since there's more representation and more diversity in our genre that even the writers the straight white writers are producing better work too mm-hmm. i can't mm-hmm. i have not everything is better Everyone's mm-hmm. books are better. We're all making each other better, better writers. And by reading each other's work, we're absorbing. Yep. You know, we're, ta- we're taking it in and it's making us all better writers, better, more rounded writers to write about our culture and our society and our, you know, and everything that's going on in our world now. Well, it's rich. I mean, it's, it's the intersectionality, right? It's, it's the rich experience of, of building empathy and reading other stories that don't have to be like yours, but it doesn't, it's, it adds, as you said so beautifully, it adds to our, our humanity. It doesn't take anything away from, from making, you know, from reading marginalized writers or from in our own writing making sure that it reflects what the world is um which is not all like you yeah (laughs) and yeah and it just why wouldn't you want that why would you not want to know as much about the world as you possibly can well Thank you for a wonderful conversation that that took some twists and turns, but I feel like I got (laughs) to know you and, um, and, and thank you for sharing so much of your journey. And, uh, you know, I've, I've just, I marvel at it all. The five (laughs) books going at one time, the, the, (laughs) the history reading and the thoughtfulness. So thank you so much for this conversation. Well, thank you, Julie. I really appreciate you having me on. All right. Well, feel better. And thank you again for a great conversation. And yeah, I look forward to seeing you in person very soon. Can't wait. Yay. Yay. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. 
Sisters in Crime is an international inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast. <laughs>